those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. These are words from Romans chapter 8. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we continue our study on this great chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, and we come to this beautiful image of God as our Father, of the family of God. Paul says those who who have placed saving faith in Christ, those who identify with Christ, are heirs of God. They are children of God. And this metaphor is extremely helpful in understanding who we are before God. J.I. Packer wrote in his famous book, Knowing God, he wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his whole outlook on life, he doesn't understand Christianity very well. Today we're going to look at three things that we inherit as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Uh, We're going to look at how we are heirs of God's tenderness, heirs of God's discipline, and heirs of God's blended family. First of all, we are heirs of God's tenderness. This image of the family of God can be um, very helpful. In our text assigned for today, Romans 8:15, it says this, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves, we read, so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, this is a very interesting phrase, Abba, Father. Father here is a Greek word, pater. Abba is an Aramaic word, Abba. Abba here is not translated into English, it's just transliterated. There is no perfect word in English for the Aramaic Abba. Abba uh, is a very affectionate, tender word for father, and it assumes intimacy and access and protection. It assumes a father who is for you. Now, you might have heard that the Aramaic word father uh, in English is daddy, and that is about the closest we can come. It's daddy or papa or whatever uh, term of endearment you might affectionately use for a loving father. But Abba would have been used by adults as well as children. This is not just a child's word or a child's concept. To first century Jewish ears, using the term Abba when talking about God or to God would have been seen as irreverent or even blasphemous. No ancient Jew would have addressed God with such an intimate address. Uh, When my wife Angie was in college back in Wayne State University where she and I met, she took a class called the Bible as Literature 
and the adjunct professor was a Jewish rabbi. And he told uh, the class that the name for God in the Bible, the closest thing we have for the name for God, is made up of four Hebrew letters. We're not exactly sure how to pronounce that because ancient Hebrew has no vowels in its print, and so we have like four consonants. But he said uh, it would be something like, it would be pronounced something like a first syllable that's pronounced Yah, and a second syllable that's pronounced Way. He would not put those two syllables together because as an Orthodox Jew, the name of God is too holy to be spoken. In Paul's day, and in some Jewish circles today, I know when they're reading the scriptures aloud and they come across this name for God, this Yahweh name of God, they will verbally substitute it with the word Adonai, which is a softer reference to God. And when scribes were copying the ancient scriptures by hand, you know, there were no photocopiers at that time. They had to hand scribe all that. And when they came to this name for God, they would sometimes leave out a letter because the name of God was thought to be too holy to speak, too holy to write. Does some of this reverence need to be restored to our concept of God in our day? Is are some of us asking, have we become too casual? Have we lost some of this holy awesomeness of God? But that was not the problem in Paul's day. In the first century, the problem was that the only image of God was this all-consuming fire. And so God was considered transcendent, which means people also thought of him as distant. And Jesus came along and he said, yes, God is all-powerful. God is transcendent. God is holy other, but God is also near and knowable and loving. And Jesus told them, in fact, if you want to change uh, a little thing about how you pray, it will completely alter your concept of God and the way you communicate with God by this one little change. Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer, when you pray, begin your prayers with our Father, dear Daddy. And it will radically change the way you think about God. And it did. No one had ever talked to God or about God in that way before. And Jesus not only does it, he invites us to do it as well. The Apostle Paul picks up trying to help people understand this. The fire is your father. The consuming fire has adopted you as sons and daughters. Remember in that culture, this is the culture of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement on one day every year, one person, the high priest, the holiest person they could find, would walk into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and they weren't even sure that this holy guy could survive that. How could you survive the presence of God? And let you know the story, they would tie a rope around the high priest so that when he went in there to the Holy of Holies, if he was overcome by the, the sheer power of the presence of God and fell over dead, who's going to go in and get him? Not me. So we could pull him out. That was the way they thought about it at this time. Now, because of Jesus, you can be in the presence of God. Now, because of Jesus, the presence of God is talked about differently. Now, because of Jesus in Romans 8, Paul is talking about the Spirit of God dwelling in you. But you don't have to worry about the presence of God taking your life. The presence of God is what gives you life. 
So how could this be? How could we transition from consuming fire to Abba Father? Well, it has to do with this new status that Paul is writing about here. Paul says you are in Christ. You are with Christ. His life is now our life. Romans chapter 8 begins no condemnation and it ends no separation. And we'll get to that at the end of our series. This is a new status, a new reality that Paul is describing here. We are now heirs of God. We are heirs of his tenderness, his love. That would have been news in, in Paul's day. But we are also heirs of God's discipline. God is a loving father and love often includes disciplining, shaping. Uh, The very first verse assigned for today is this one. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. God's vision is to help us put to death our foolish, misguided, and sinful ways. The Spirit comes in sometimes like a gentle breeze, And sometimes the Spirit comes in like a tornado, right? The Spirit convicts us, sometimes confronts us, sometimes commands us. I came across an article online that was a critique of the parenting model that has dominated parenting in America for the last 30 or 40 years, a model that many of us were parented in. Uh, The model was taught by a guy named Dr. Spock, Not the Star Trek Vulcan guy, but the American pediatrician turned author guy who encouraged parents to follow their instincts and to be more uh, flexible and accommodating. He advocated the child-centered approach to parenting, and he has his fans, and of course he has his critics. The article that crossed my screen this week was titled, How Dr. Spock is Destroying America. Give you an idea where this is going. And here are some excerpts from this article. It said, what Spock did was appeal to parental love. He steered parents away from the seemingly cold, objective pursuit of character training and toward their own feelings of nurture. Rather than tell parents the truth that love means doing what is right for our children despite our feelings of empathy, he directed them to let their feelings guide them. And before people realized it, he had redefined love as indulgence. This has left the majority of mommies feeling that to love their children, they must make them happy. If little Junior doesn't want to be on mommy's lap, he lets him down. If he refuses to eat his broccoli, they give him pizza and a sugared vitamin. If he loses a toy, breaks a window, or receives a parking ticket, they pay for his negligence. In current generations, to love means to rescue children from challenges, deprivation, and the consequence of their actions. But for most of history, such indulgences were considered spoiling a child. Many parents who who live for their children's happiness admit that they, quote, spoil them a little, unquote. But such practices are outrageous since to spoil something is to ruin it. Our culture now suffers from great moral decline and our lawmakers legislate like indulgent parents because of such a significant misunderstanding of love and discipline. Well, you, you, you may or may not agree um, with all that's in there, um, but I think what everyone here would agree with is that parenting is difficult. When, uh, if, you, if you do have kids, you know uh, that there's something called an annual well visit 
We take our kids once a year to the pediatrician for a checkup and to receive their inoculations, uh, uh, vaccinations, and uh, uh, no kid loves these visits. No parent loves these visits. And my wife Angie took care of the bulk of that kind of stuff. We had one kid who was especially resistant to vaccinations and to shots of all kinds. And so one time I went along. And the doctor was brilliant. She said, this is going to be a team effort. She said, I'm going to give the vaccination. Mom, you're going to come alongside and encourage and tell the child he's going to be okay. And Dad, your job is to hold him down. Right? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm the muscle of the operation. We're doing the good cop, bad cop thing. And I'd rather be the good cop, but I can be the bad cop. And you could see the betrayal in my son's eyes. What happened to Fun Dad? Right? Now, Abba has become this consuming fire uh, when really the father was trying to be an Abba. And kids don't understand that. When you get home, the three-year-old never says, you know, Dad, I want to I thank you for what you did back there. Right? Uh, three-year-olds do not say that. But those of you younger kids, I want to assure you that when that kid reaches 25 years of age, they will also not thank you for any of that. It's a thankless job, right? But we, we do it anyway. Have you ever been held down or needled by God? Has God ever given you medicine you didn't want but needed? Sometimes we need a tough father who cares more about our character than about our gratification. Someone who cannot be manipulated or fooled someone who gives us what we need. Last Sunday, I really emphasized the theme, the overall theme of Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we all celebrated. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But remember that God's love is a disciplining love. God loves us too much to let us destroy ourselves or others. God loves us too much to watch us squander our gifts or deny truth or live by our appetites. God's spirit will help us put to death the misdeeds of the body. Right? We are adopted sons and daughters of God and this means that we are heirs of God's tenderness but we are also heirs of God's discipline. And thirdly and lastly, we are heirs of God's blended family, right? God is the father and we are the children, the adopted children. That makes us brothers and sisters and not just us, but all who are in Christ all around the world. We are adopted into this glorious, global, historic family of all nations and, and, and colors and ages and races. Uh, this is the vision of Revelation 7-9 when John was given this, this uh, insight into heaven, into what is to come. John records his vision this, this way. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's the future. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all gathered as one, worshiping the one God. That's what it's going to be like. 
And Paul says the time to embrace that is now. And if we think that this is just a picture of heaven, all this, uh, the whole world worshiping with all colors and backgrounds and ages, if that's just a future vision, then why do we pray together the Lord's Prayer? Why do we pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? When we pray that line, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying, God, make the up there come down here. Make, make the future come into the present and show me my role in that picture. Do we understand how radical it was for Paul to pair Abba and Father together? Abba, an Aramaic word, language of the Jews. Pater, a Greek word, language of the Gentiles. Talk about social divides, the Jews and the Gentiles. That was the rift in Paul's day. Abba, Father. Paul, who grew up Jewish, who was educated among the rabbis, who was taught to pray every day, God, thank you that I am not a Gentile. That same Paul began almost every one of his letters with the words, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. A common greeting among Gentiles, the way a Gentile would greet another Gentile in a letter, grace to you. Peace to you, the way a Jew would greet another Jew in a letter. And Paul says grace and peace. Jew and Gentile come together as one across the great divide. Paul writing to the church at Rome is significant in itself. A brown-skinned apostle from the Middle East writing to a light-skinned church in Europe and in verse 12, he calls them brothers and sisters. In verse 15, he says, we cry, Abba, Father. He's your father, and he's my father. Somewhere along the way, Paul opened himself up to his Abba, and it shook him to the core. Now, the multi-ethnic church in America remains, for the most part, a unrealized dream, uh, in fact, uh, this week, the lead article in Christianity Today magazine, the title is, Can Multi-Ethnic Worship Really Happen on This Side of Heaven? Can Multi-Ethnic Worship Really Happen on This Side of Heaven? We know it's going to happen in heaven. Revelation 7, 9 says that. But can it really happen here? Because we don't have a lot of examples of it. And the author points out all the problems with churches that have tried to be multiracial. We have real geographic barriers especially where we live in the most segregated part of the country. We don't live in the same neighborhood, so most churches reflect their own neighborhoods. And then the author also says uh, people who are trying to build multiracial, multiethnic worshiping churches have a whole list of problems that, that, that make it an uphill battle, uh, the author says, she says. Uh, and and uh, like, uh, the author lists music, preaching style, appropriate clothing for worship, food served, all those things and many more are differences among different ethnicities. Now, I would say all those things are also true for the multi-generational church. Each generation also has different ideas about music and preaching style and appropriate clothing for worship and food served. This dream of coming together with different generations, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, it is an uphill battle, but it is worth it. 
Now that's the local church level has these dilemmas, but then knock it up another level here. We're part of a larger church. We're part of a regional church made up of all those who are in Christ throughout Metro Detroit. You can take it up higher too if you want. I have um, told you that I'm part of a group of pastors that meets every other Thursday morning. And uh, the number of pastors in the group vary throughout the region, but at its core are 12 pastors Uh, half of them black, half of them white. And we began to meet more frequently this summer when the racial tensions really got heated in our country. And we wanted to be good shepherds, not only of our own individual congregations, but could we somehow shepherd and pastor our region in some of these tensions. And uh, I told some of you about that we blocked off two days to go away together and work on this ourselves, that we would understand each other better. And these are all friends of mine. A lot of you asked me how it went, and I said it went great. But honestly, there were parts of it that got pretty difficult. We, we don't see things the same way. And there are times when the tensions rise that I feel a little bit guarded and on eggshells because I know the possibility for misunderstandings are great. But we are so committed to this. We continue to meet and talk. We're going to carve out another couple days here in a couple months to go away. We are committed to getting this right in ourselves as a group of pastors and then in our region to pursue this glorious dream. I'm not talking about white guilt. I do not feel guilty for being white. I can't help the color of my skin or the place of my birth any more than anyone else can. The problem isn't whether or not I feel white guilt. The problem is that sometimes I feel supreme because of where I was born, because of the way I talk, because of the culture from which I come. It's very subtle. It is not overt, but it's one of the things the Spirit wants me to put to death. When I read Paul's letter to the church at Rome or any of Paul's letters in the New Testament, I get the feeling that the church in the first century was kind of ahead on this. That a lot of the divisions in culture find their way into the church. That was true in the first century. There were deep political divisions in the first century. A lot of you know that. There were deep racial divisions in the first century. The gender gap was enormous, and all of those problems in culture find their way into the church. Of course they do. They do in our day as well. But in the first century church, somehow they were able to get around this idea that we are brothers and sisters, and we love each other. And there was this unity in the first century that existed inside the church among those who were in Christ that eluded those who were outside. So much so, people noticed. They looked at the church and thought, if those people can love each other, there must be something supernatural going on. That's the only explanation. The church was kind of ahead of culture on this. I worry in our day that sometimes the church is thought to be behind culture on this, but historically the church has led the way, and we can again. Those who are in Christ have this unique advantage. We share the same Father. We are brothers and sisters and heirs of the promise. This family, this global, diverse, generational family, this is part of our glorious inheritance as children of God. We're going to move now to the Lord's Supper. 
And in the Lord's Supper, we come to the table of the Lord as family. And those 12 pastors I mentioned earlier, each of them are serving the Lord's Supper communion to their congregations this morning. Our partners in India and Africa are all sharing this same sacrament on this same day. The table of the Lord is larger and broader than we see. It is so easy for this sacrament to become an empty ritual, and I want to encourage you not to let that happen. So let us prepare to receive Christ once more. Amen.